Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and go to the book of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter, page 809. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats. i got to say this before I, I, I start. Um, I, I so look forward every Sunday to singing with you. Um, I just came from a conference, like I, I mentioned, where there was 10,000 people singing praises to God. It was amazing. It was amazing. But... I love that just as much as I love singing with you here. Just just singing praises with my church family is is something I look forward to all week long. So I, I, I appreciate the, the the congregational singing so much here. In Matthew chapter five, of course, we have the Beatitudes. This is the beginning of a sermon that Jesus is is preaching. Here, he sees crowds, and so he goes away to talk with his disciples. And then by the end of the sermon, we realize that the crowds have followed him, and they're astonished and they're amazed at the teaching that they've heard Jesus give to his disciples. And how does he start the sermon? Well, he says this. He says in verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about how that this was the beginning of a, of a section here of what Jesus is describing, uh, what a disciple looks like. It's uh, what does a true follower of Jesus Christ look like. And here's, and here's what he's, he's giving them in this moment here. And he's telling them, listen, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, if you're going to be someone who claims my name, this is what, what you you look like because this is the one who's a citizen of heaven and he says the poor in spirit and remember we define that as the idea of spiritual bankruptcy of understanding that without christ without god we have no hope it says for theirs is the kingdom of heaven those who are poor in spirit. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We talked about how this is seeing sin the way God sees it. And sin in our own souls, sins in our society, sin all around us, and the effects of sin that it has. That, and we talked about how that God deserves better, and that sin should bother us. And Jesus is saying that for someone who is a citizen of heaven, someone who is a disciple of Christ... If someone who sin bothers that person, they're not perfect, they're not someone who is uh, uh, completely innocent, but they are forgiven people who sin bothers them. Then verse 5, it says, blessed are the meek or the humble or those who use their strength in a humble spirit for the good of other people. And it says, the reason why they're blessed for they will inherit the earth. They will have a grand inheritance as they, because in this life they have given their life for others in the name of Christ, and God will richly reward that one day. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Two weeks ago we looked at this verse, verse 6, for they will be satisfied. Had a, do we have a passion? Do we long for right? Do we long for God's righteousness to be exalted in our hearts, in our families, in our workplaces, in our society? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then we come to verse 7 here. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we got to remember that we cannot, we cannot interpret this verse uh, apart from the others. That these flow from one another. So Jesus' purpose here was to define and describe what true disciples of Christ look like. 
So let me ask the question then, how are we doing with these tests? As we go through this and we see poor in spirit and mourning and meek and the idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and as today we consider the idea of being merciful, how are you doing in this description? Can these be said of you? Are you a disciple of Christ? Now, when we look at this verse here, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is the question is, is, does this verse teach that in order to get mercy, I have to show mercy? Is this a quid pro quo? Is this a, I will do this so I can get this? Well, sort of, but not in the way that we probably think of. Yes, it's true that we need to be merciful in order to understand and receive God's mercy, for that is what the verse says. But giving and getting mercy, we have to understand, are inextricably connected. But not in a meritorious sense. Not in a sense of, okay, I have shown mercy to you, now therefore I have earned God's mercy to me. That's not what's being communicated here. It's rather in a relative sense, or a reactive sense. So in other words, a person does not earn God's mercy by being merciful, But rather, the merciful person is merciful precisely because he has been changed by God's mercy in the first place. And ultimately will experience God's mercy for eternity as a true disciple of Christ. And so it is that the fact that we have received mercy, that we're compelled to show mercy, and therefore we will receive ultimate mercy for all eternity. Now, much can be said about the subject of mercy. We could spend a lot of time talking about this. We could actually probably spend several sermons talking about this idea of mercy. But today I just want to offer three observations quickly about this idea of mercy. First of all, and again, nothing's on the screen today, so I'll try to repeat the main points. uh, So if you're taking notes, you can write them down. Number one, mercy is a fundamental characteristic of God. Number one, mercy is a fundamental characteristic of God. I like what Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said. He said, mercy sweetens all of the attributes of God. So every attribute of God, mercy then sweetens it. So you can imagine God's holiness, He cannot be in the face of evil. He cannot be around evil. But it's his mercy that sweetens that. God's justice. He has to uh, do what is right and has to uh, 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 be just in all that he does. But mercy sweetens that. I think Watson was right in saying that. Let me remind you of Psalm 103, verse 8. It says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The goal today is that we have an understanding that our God is a merciful God. In fact, that even as we sit here right now and breathe oxygen, it is precisely because of the mercy of God. And so my, 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 my prayer is that at the end of our time together this morning, that we will be so amazed by God's mercy that we will be compelled to show mercy to other people. Because this is what Matthew is saying here, as he's recording Jesus as saying here in the sermon. He's saying, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, if you're my disciple, God's mercy being shown to you will so radically change you that you will be merciful. And then you will receive ultimate mercy. 
because you're a citizen of the kingdom. If you have your Bible, go, go back to the Old Testament book of Micah. Micah, the, the Old Testament prophet Micah. Micah chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, it's page 781. Micah is towards the end of what we call the Old Testament, one of the prophetic books. And here Micah has just had this uh, tremendous book where he's talking about calling people back to the Lord. In chapter 6, it's a a fascinating uh, chapter where he uh, describes almost like a courtroom scenario and talks about God and interaction there. But then we come to chapter 7 and he's talking about this idea of salvation and waiting on God. And then he ends the book, uh, his, his prophetic book, Micah ends it by saying and describing God a little bit to us. And it's just beautiful. It says this in Micah 7, verse 18, it says, Who is a God like you? Notice how he describes him. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Notice the beautiful imagery in that text that we just read there. It's just, it's, it's gorgeous here. As he says, the idea of pardoning iniquity. Imagine being guilty of a, of a terrible crime, a crime where you knew that you were going to prison for the rest of your life. You would not see your family any longer. You would not have the opportunity to be a free person in society because you were guilty. You weren't framed. You weren't, uh, uh, it wasn't a bad trial. You actually did the crime that you were accused of, and now the punishment was going to be uh, uh, met out to you, and you would be no longer able to see your children. You'll be no longer able to see your family any longer. This is your condition. And then, and then the judge says, but I'm going to give you a pardon. Can you imagine the feeling that you would have in that moment? You know you're guilty. You know that you deserve what was, what was uh, uh, the judgment that was given to you. But you were Pardoned. That's what he says here. Who, who is a God like you that would do this? That you would look at my guilt. You would see me for who I am. Everyone else we can fool and, and we can hide our true selves from everyone else. But now God, God sees us. And he pardons because of his mercy. He says he passes over transgression. Beautiful there of where he says, I am not going to dwell upon this about you. I am not going to make this my focus about you. He says he won't retain his anger forever. Then later on here, he says he treads his, the sin underfoot. You know the, the, the image that came to my mind when I read this? It was taken like, like a cigarette. I'm not advocating smoking here, but taking a cigarette and throwing it to the ground and stomping it out. That's what God does with our sin. Throws it down, stomps it out, treads it underfoot. No sin is too great to trip up God. 
He stomps it underfoot. Casting sin into the ocean depths, there he says. Never to be seen again. If you lose something while you're on the ocean, if you're on a cruise or you're on a boat or whatever, and something falls overboard, the chances of you ever getting that back are almost zero. Because once something goes into the ocean depths, it is very difficult to get it back. This is the image that God is saying, that Mike is talking about God and, and his actions and how he treats his people. It's beautiful. We take it for granted. But why does he do this? Micah answers this. It says, because he delights in steadfast love. Some translations have mercy there. Steadfast love and mercy. This is the reason why God does this, because he's merciful. So mercy is a fundamental characteristic of God. I think of Genesis chapter 2. In verses 16 and 17, you remember there's a story of this is when Adam and Eve, they were given one command. And one command only, don't eat of a tree. You can eat any of the trees, but just this one tree, don't eat it. Then what did God say? He says, if you eat of it, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He doesn't say that, okay, if you eat of that, man, it's going to mess things up for a long time. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And did Adam and Eve die that day? No. Death came into the world that day, sure. But God was merciful to Adam and Eve. Did they die eventually? Yes. Was it because of the sin? Yes. But not before God enacted a redemption plan. His mercy. This is part of who he is. Go over to Ephesians chapter 2 real quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, this is page 976 in the Bible's there for you. Ephesians chapter 2, a few weeks ago, or several weeks ago, Pastor Mike spoke from this text here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're talking about how that mercy is a fundamental characteristic of God. Look how we are described here in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, In you, Paul's writing here, he says, In you were dead in trespasses and sins in which, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul there is describing us. And how does he describe us? He describes us as dead. Now, do you fully understand what Paul is saying here? I, I think it's easy to miss the point sometimes of what he's saying here. He's saying that we were dead. Now, I've studied Greek, and when I look at the Greek text here, dead here has the nuance of dead. Okay? It means no life. Okay, it means that, that there's that, that there's no no heartbeat at all. Dead. Sometimes people they think they think someone's dead, but they're not quite dead yet. Right before I was born, my father was in a terrible motorcycle accident. He was riding a motorcycle and a lady ran through uh, uh, a red light and hit him, and the last thing my father remembers was going through her windshield. 
there was at least twice, I'm told, that the doctors thought that he was gone. And they got the paddles out, and, and then his heart started beating again. Now, even though they thought that they had lost him, he was not dead yet. Because God was not done with him yet. But you see, in this text here, we're described as completely dead. Think about what this means. This does not mean that you were really sick and then recovered. This does not mean that you were weary but then got rest. This means that you and I, apart from God, before Christ invaded our lives, before God's mercy invaded our lives, that we were completely dead. There was no spiritual life. There was no spiritual hope. There was no strength or ability in us whatsoever. What can a dead person do? They can't do anything. This is how we are described. But, verse 4. But God, how is God described here? Rich in what? Mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so this is the fundamental characteristic of God, is that he is rich in mercy towards us, and that in our helpless state, in our situation where we were just dead in our trespasses and sins, and it doesn't matter what age you were. I was very young when I came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and it was hard for me in my teen years to wonder if I truly was a Christian because I didn't have these heinous crimes and sins that I heard other people when they were saved later on had. But then it dawned on me one day, we're all saved from sin. My friend who had, was saved later in life, in his senior year, and was saved from a life of immorality that he had done, I was saved as a young boy from living that same life. Because I was dead, just like he was dead. I would have gone down the same road, had mercy not invaded my life. And so here we see this fundamental characteristic of God. He's merciful. This is who he is. Number two, mercy is a fundamental characteristic of Jesus' disciples. Mercy is a fundamental characteristic of Jesus' disciples. First, we saw that it was a fundamental characteristic of God. And now we're seeing, according to back in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus was given the Sermon on the Mount, that it is a fundamental characteristic of those who follow Christ. You see, mercy is not optional. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. There's no option there. There's no option of saying, you know, if you're having a good day, show some mercy to other people. But if you haven't eaten yet, don't show mercy. It doesn't say if, if your boss is unrealistic with the expectations on you, you get a pass on showing mercy. He says, no, show mercy, be merciful. And the reason why is because our Father is merciful to us. Go over to Luke chapter 10, please. Luke 10. Luke 10. I think the best way to illustrate this is a parable that Jesus told. Page 869, if you're using one of the Bibles here. Luke 10. And this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me read this to you quickly. 
Luke chapter 10. We're going to be introduced to a lawyer here. And the first verse I'm going to read in verse 25. Now, this lawyer is a little different than how we understand lawyers today in our culture. In this context, this would have been a person who was uh, completely uh, uh, familiar with and an expert in the law. Not in the law of, uh, uh, you know, civil law, although in this context they were connected, but primarily in the law of the scriptures, the Torah. And so here's what, what he's saying here, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Basically, he says, You're the expert on the law. What do you think? And so the lawyer answered, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Yeah, do that. You'll have eternal life. Do that. But desiring to justify himself, so apparently this lawyer knew that he wasn't doing what Jesus said. He said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Trying to trip him up. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And we saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now notice the lawyer's response here. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. You see, what Jesus is doing here, and in, in the, in the lawyer got it, is he was connecting acts of mercy with loving the neighbor. And so when we have our slogan that we use, love God, love people, serve the world, love people, it has the idea in that of mercy. And what Jesus was doing here is he's telling this beautiful story to get to the heart of this man who was trying to trick Jesus. And, and, and the details are important here as far as it was a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a notoriously uh, uh, um, a dangerous road to travel on. They had lots of areas where uh, uh, thieves would hide out and spring upon people who were passing down the road because there was lots of places where they could hide in the dark shadows and then come out and rob people as they went by. And so this man who was going down there by himself apparently and, and he gets attacked and, and everything's taken and then a couple people come by, people who should have known better, people who their responsibility was actually to do exactly what Jesus said and show mercy. But they didn't. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying the one who loves their neighbor is the one who shows mercy. Now, they would have had plenty of reason. I mean, the Samaritan, he was 
To, to get you to understand why this would have been shocking for the lawyer to hear, when the Pharisees were upset with Jesus, they were trying to figure out a really harsh name to call him, and they came up with Samaritan. That was the way that they insulted Jesus by calling him a Samaritan. These were not nice. These were not people held in high esteem. And so when Jesus makes him the hero of this story, it was shocking to everyone who heard. But what's the point here? The point is that mercy is a fundamental characteristic of Jesus' disciples because Jesus has commanded us to love others. And he says, be merciful to others. And he uses an unlikely person as a hero to this. And this neighbor, or excuse me, this lawyer here, he looks at this. And when Jesus says, well, which one is the neighbor to him? He says, well, the one that showed mercy. What's involved in mercy? And mercy is, is meeting people's needs, of seeing people in their misery, seeing people in their distress, and helping them in doing things, doing actions that will help them in that moment. I love what uh, C.H. Spurgeon said. This. I don't have the quote in my notes or anything. Uh, I, I just thought of this, and so I, I don't have the exact quote. But Spurgeon, when he's writing on this text here, he talks about, he says, well, you know, most of us would have been happy with leaving a pamphlet or a tract next to the man and continuing on our journey. And he's right. Because we would be like, well, maybe this man, he deserves what he gets because he is on this road alone. Or maybe it would have been he, this is part of a trap. But notice this man, and he showed mercy to him. As, and then he says, I will, I will take him, and I will, I will give money so that he, he can be cared for. And if you spend more, I will pay you when I get back. Now, talk about leaving yourself open for being taken advantage of. This innkeeper, I mean, he doesn't know this innkeeper most likely. This innkeeper could have looked at that and said, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. When he comes back, he's like, man, this guy, his medicine... He, it just cost way too much, way too much. And so I had to send, I had to, I had to go to get it from the Queen of Sheba herself. And she brought her, her oils and things to me so to, to, to make this man better. And so it really cost this much. And he could have just been swindling this guy. He left himself wide open for being taken advantage of. But it was worth it. Because we cannot show mercy without it being a risk. And this is what this man understood. See, mercy is a fundamental characteristic of Jesus' disciples. I think we see this on display in Matthew chapter 25. For time, I won't have us turn there. But in Matthew 25, this is Jesus describing at the end of time, and he says this. He says, you know, there's going to be many on that day. He's going to separate people one on one side, one on the other, those who are truly his disciples and those who are not. And he says... And, and how does, what are the, some of the things that he uses? And if, you, if you're taking notes, write down Matthew 25 and read it later on, okay? But in this text, he says, here are the people that are really my disciples and here are the ones who are not. And what does he use to describe those things? What is the test? And he says this. He says, I was hungry and you didn't give me food. He says, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was homeless, you didn't give me a place to sleep. I was in prison, you never visited me. 
This is what he says. And then he says to the true disciples of Christ, and he says, But I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was homeless, you gave me a place to stay. I was naked, and you gave me clothes. And I was, I was in prison, and you visited me, and you were hospitable to me, and you brought me things. And the people on both sides, they say, Well, when did this happen? The, the true disciples of Christ, they look at them, and they say, they say When was this? We, I don't remember you being in prison, and I was visiting you. I don't remember giving you food. I don't remember giving you drink. I don't remember giving you clothes. I, I, I have no recollection of this at all. When did this happen, Jesus? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these people here, you did it to me. You see, this is the fundamental characteristic of a disciple of Christ is that we're willing to serve Jesus by being merciful to everyone else, by sacrificing for other people. Because our lives are radically changed when we understand the mercy that God has shown us. When we get that in our minds, it translates into actions into other people. Now, Jesus is not teaching there that if we have a homeless ministry or we have a clothing drive or we visit people in prison, that we automatically get to heaven. That's not the point of it. But the point is that when we're changed by Jesus, then those things come out. It's a mark of being a disciple of Christ. Proverbs 19 says it this way. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will repay him for his deed. Think about that. Whoever gives to the poor lends to the Lord. That's how God views this. So when we help people. So, excuse me, mercy is not optional. It's something that is required for all of us. But it's also a test. It's also a test. In James chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, we see there that what James is saying here is he says that if we, if we see someone that has need and we just say be warmed and filled and we don't do what's necessary for the body, he says, is that true faith? And so mercy, being merciful to others, is a test of our faith. If we're not being willing to be merciful to others and help people in their need, James raises the question, is your faith authentic? James chapter 2, you can write that reference down and look at that later on as well. James says it's a test of our faith. John gets in on this idea of mercy being a test too in 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, where he talks about it's a test of authentic love. So James takes the take and he says, this is saying if we're merciful towards other people, if we're kind to other people, if we meet other people's needs, we're willing to sacrifice for other people, that comes out of authentic faith. And if we don't have that in our lives, we have to wonder, do we have authentic faith? John, on the other hand, he takes the tact and he says, well, this is also a test of authentic love. He says, how can you say that you love God and hate your brother? You cannot. In fact, John goes as far as to say that if anyone says that they love God and yet they're not willing to show love to their brother, that person, according to John, is a liar. See, these are authentic tests here. And so we first saw that this was a fundamental mercy, a fundamental characteristic of God. But it's also a fundamental characteristic of Jesus' followers, of being a disciple of Christ. It's an authentic test of love and faith. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that there's a, a widow 
A wealthy widow whose only heir is a nephew who dotes upon her, takes care of her. You can imagine that maybe sometimes that she would wonder, is his love for her authentic? How could she test this? Is he caring for her only because she, he knows that he will receive her riches? So what does she do? She observes how he treats people who can give him nothing. People who are poor. People have no means of repaying this man for his kindness and his mercy. It's when she realizes and she recognizes and sees how he treats those, that's when the true test comes out. You see, Jesus puts the same test to us. He says, how do you treat the least of these? People who can give you nothing. How do you treat them? It's easy for you to want to treat me with esteem because you know that I hold the ability to give you eternal life. But what about these people? That's what Jesus is saying is that when you did it to least of these, you did it to me. See, mercy is so important. It's a test. It's, it's not optional. But mercy is tangible as well. Mercy is more than a feeling. It's not just feeling sorry for someone in their situation. It's, the, it's not looking at someone in their state and saying, oh, I wish that were better for you. It's action. Mercy is action stemming from a supernaturally changed heart. I think of Joseph. I think of Joseph and the story of Joseph. And some of you will remember this. And this was a, a situation where Joseph, his brothers, they, they, they sold him into slavery. But a, a point that sometimes I think we forget about in that story is that the first plan of the brothers was not to sell Joseph into slavery. The first plan was to kill him. I mean, so it's not like Thanksgiving dinners were happy occasions in Joseph's house, okay? There was animosity there. They couldn't stand him, and so they sold him into slavery. It would have been easy for Joseph to hold that over them. Fast forward, Joseph is... Uh, found favor in Egypt. He's high in command. He's overseeing the food distribution because of a famine. And lo and behold, who comes looking for food? Joseph's brothers. Now, I got to tell you, I've got two brothers, okay? And when one older, one younger. Whenever I could get something over uh, my older brother, I took advantage of that situation. It, there, if 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 uh, if there was something that he was mean to me about, or whatever the case may be, we had a fight, and then he would come to me for help later on on something. The act, the response would have been something along the lines of, "Well, well, well, look who needs little brother's help now." And I would say, "Well, you know, if you do this chore, maybe I'll help you." And, he, and now, lest you think my older brother was the angel in this, he would do the exact same things, okay? So, Joseph here, though, his heart, his heart had been changed by something. He understood that God was at work. And so, he responded completely differently. And he loved his brothers, and he helped them. It's a tangible action there. We can think of Stephen when he was being stoned. He wanted mercy to be shown to those who were casting stones at him. Because his heart had been changed by God. 
This is how we fulfill the commandment to love our enemies. We talked about that last week at the conference with Irfan, about loving our enemies. This is mercy. So mercy is seen. When I say it's tangible, what do I mean by that? Here are just some examples real quickly here. Mercy is seen and not holding grudges because we know that we too have sinned grievously. Mercy is seen in telling others about Christ when we're afraid, tired, lazy, or feel inadequate. Because we know that to have abundant bread and withhold it from the starving is not just in bad taste, but it's criminal. Mercy is seen in not taking offense easily because we know the vast majority of people we come in contact with are still dead in their trespasses and sins. And for the ones who should know better, mercy is seen in understanding that we all are still in a struggle spiritually. Mercy is seen in helping someone even if they annoy you because you can be sure that you annoy people too and you have received their help. Mercy is seen in sitting at the lunch table with the unpopular kid at school at risk of losing your cool factor in the school. Mercy is seen in giving a good tip even though the waiter or waitress was horrible. Mercy is seen in not giving a glare to someone when they take your parking spot. Mercy is seen in putting up with people's weaknesses for the greater good. Mercy is seen in giving to the poor, helping the homeless, and sacrificing for those in need. Mercy is more than just feeling bad for someone else. They're actions, intentional actions. But finally this morning, after we've seen it's a fundamental characteristic of God, it's a fundamental characteristic of the disciple of Christ, I just want to end with this. Mercy is a fundamentally difficult characteristic to consistently exhibit. Mercy is a fundamentally difficult characteristic to consistently exhibit. I did not realize how wordy that was until I just read it just now. So I will read it one more time. Mercy is a fundamentally difficult characteristic to consistently exhibit. Or you can say, mercy's hard. Okay? It's not natural. Why is it so difficult? Because it's not natural. We're selfish. And honestly, if we're going to be honest... We feel like we need worse people in the world to prove our goodness and worth. It's always good to have people who are worse at whatever it is around you because it makes you look better. When you're on the basketball team, it's always good to have a bunch of losers playing next to you because then you look like Michael Jordan. You know, in life, sometimes we react the same way. We, we, we want to compare ourselves, and when we compare ourselves, who do we compare ourselves to typically? It's not the person who's doing great. It's the person who's messing up the most. And we say, well, at least I'm not that bad. Mercy is hard because we are selfish. But I also say that mercy is difficult. And again, this is not an exhaustive list, but I'm just sharing some thoughts with you as I was meditating on this is that mercy is difficult because we're afraid of being taken advantage of. We're afraid that when we try to help someone, they're going to take advantage of us. And no one likes to be taken advantage of. I don't. In fact, we feel dumb. We feel duped. We feel naive. We don't want to be gullible. But I think sometimes in the process, we... I like the Levite and the priest. And we pass by 
and we hope that someone else helps the person. That Samaritan opened himself up to being taken advantage of, and Jesus commends him for it. We say, well, we need to be good stewards of what God's given to us. Good point. Good point. But consider the parable of the talents. When the man was upset, when he gave money to his servants to earn money with, and the one didn't, he was upset. And he says, you should have at least done, invested it in some way so I, could have gotten some, so I could have gotten some interest or something. But even that was a risky venture. Even in stewardship, risk is involved. So I guess the question you have to ask yourself is, is your faith strong enough to risk being taken advantage of? The point is, is that what we have, where does it come from anyway? It comes from God. And if we are taken advantage of, God, that's between them and God. I, I'll never forget one of the most helpful pieces of advice I was ever given. It was given by a friend of mine who's a pastor, and we were getting ready to go down to Louisiana after the hurricane. And my wife and I were down there. We were gathering supplies, and I was getting donors and all sorts of stuff. And, and we had a storage unit that we'd store things in, and lots of food, lots of supplies, and things like that. We were trying to help people who had to leave their homes because of the hurricane. And I'll never forget a, a good friend of mine, a pastor of mine, as we were getting ready to embark on this mission. He said to me, he said this. He said, Jeremy, understand this right now. You will be taken advantage of. And I said, really? He said, absolutely. Be liberated knowing that it's going to happen. That be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, but at the same time, understand it's going to happen. If we're showing mercy to people, it will be taken advantage of. Just know it. And he was right. I can remember situations where we got taken advantage of, but those words came back to me. And it was liberating because then it was no longer about me. It was about, okay, God, this is between you and them. You exercise justice much better than I do. You can take care of the situation. That doesn't mean we're stupid, but it means that we're willing to be risky in our mercy showing to people, or showing mercy to people. I think another reason why mercy is so difficult is because we have a keen sense of justice for other people. We want people to get what they deserve, but often with a little thought of what might be going on behind the scenes. You see, we fail to see them as they are, slaves to sin or fighting sin's effect, just like we are. We demand righteousness from them when we ourselves struggle to hunger and thirst after righteousness as well. We demand that they hold, be held to a higher standard than what we want to be held to. And mercy's hard because we think that everyone should be doing right. And we forget that we struggle with the exact same things. You know, we fail to see people for who they are. They're people who are, who are, are, are just decimated by sin's effects. I mean, think about just alone in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. We see that there was a, an alienation from, from God there. They, we, we read in, in Genesis 2 and 3, we read about how that, that Adam and Eve used to walk together in the cool of the day that it says. And yet then, after they sinned, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid themselves from God. Sin alienated them from God. And that's exactly what the people who you have opportunities to show mercy to in ourselves, that we're dealing with those same effects, an alienation from God. 
There's also an alienation from our true selves that there was this time where they were, they were hiding themselves because they, they, they all of a sudden their, their relationship with each other, their relationship and their, their purpose for being with God was changed or, or marred, I should say. And so that they're, 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 um, they were made to worship God and fellowship with God and now that was changed or, or impacted, I should say, because of sin. Their, their relationship with society, with each other, they were, they were all of a sudden, they looked at each other and they realized their nakedness. They, were, they, they, they saw that themselves for who they really were and they were ashamed of it. Then they saw the other person there and they saw their nakedness. And so what did they do? They, they got leaves together and they started to cover themselves. They were covering up what was different about each other. And they were saying that, well, this is odd. We don't understand this. And, 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 and we would rather cover it than, than deal with the differences here and that has effects into today and then even in the world there was alienation to the earth no longer was the earth now a a, a paradise free from curse it was cursed at that point and the dust that had that god had used to form them became the tyrant that would one day overshadow them and swallow them up when they died you see this alienation all over the place because of sin. And this is what happened. And the reason I'm bringing this up is this. When we see people who are destitute, when we see people that they, in our opinion, do not deserve mercy, we need to remember that they're dealing with the same effects of sin that we are. And we've just received mercy for believers in Christ. We've received God's mercy and they haven't yet. And so should that not compel us? To be merciful to other people and be patient. If we go to a restaurant for lunch and the waiter or waitress is, is not attending to your drink enough, do we start giving glares? Or do we realize maybe this person, this is their first day in the job and they are just overwhelmed? Or maybe they just found out that they're, maybe they're worried about their daughter at home who is sick. Or maybe they don't understand the 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 future of their marriage because when they left they had a fight with their spouse we have no idea what's going on in people's lives and we're so quick to enact justice and so quick to demand that they treat us right that we forget about mercy but god says the christ follower your whole life is defined by mercy your breath that you breathe is mercy So of all people, we should be merciful. See, it's hard, though, because we forget these things. We forget who the people and what the situations they they may be in. You know, we would not get angry with a dog that growled and barked at us when we tried to feed it if we knew that it had been abused. We would be patient and we would show mercy. Sin has abused every person you see. Let's be merciful. But the real reason, the ultimate reason why it's difficult is showing mercy is because we have either forgotten or have never fully understood God's mercy and grace that is available to us. I think of Judas. Judas criticized the Lord for spending money uh, or for the lady spending money on perfume that she broke it over Jesus' feet. And he said, he says this in the book of John, Judas says, she should have sold it and given the money to the poor. Mercy, right? But Jesus revealed his heart. He was in charge of the money. 
And he used to steal from it. He didn't care about the poor. He only cared about himself. So a lack of mercy is actually a mark of someone who betrayed Jesus. So if we lack mercy, it's because we've either forgotten God's mercy to us or we never understood it. Showing mercy is the natural response to having received mercy. And so if you have a difficult time showing mercy in your life, you need to stop and start asking yourself, do you really understand mercy? Do you really understand God's mercy to you? Because once we understand what God, the mercy that we live in, the patience of Christ that we live in, it's much easier to be merciful to others. A lack of mercy is a theological condition. It's not a personality disorder. God expects every person who claims to be a Christian to consistently show mercy to those around them. And if they don't, they are no better than Judas. So, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Let's look for opportunities to show mercy to people around us, precisely because God has been merciful to us. And if you don't know God's mercy... Let me introduce that to you today. Talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to discuss mercy. I do pray that we would be merciful because you have shown great mercy to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.